Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning, podcast, and welcome to a new episode on the Pierre Lambert Show. I've missed you guys. I hope you're having a beautiful day and that you're ready for yet another beautiful soul today. Her name is Taylor Reese. She is a documentary filmmaker, Sony Alpha artisan and photojournalist, and avid explorer of stories and landscape, natural resource issues, and above as the human heart, as she puts it. Honestly, Taylor is one of those badass humans that does a little bit crazy things, very extreme and adventurous. She's been involved in many adventure documentary films that you might have heard of and seen. And I'll mention a few like Moonwalk, From Curious With Love, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that one correctly, Down To Nothing, What If You Fly, Under An Arctic Sky, and The Last Honey Hunter. So Taylor's focus lately has been to bring a new perspective and deeper public understanding on the complexity of climate change, conservation, human rights, environmental justice, and extractive industries. What matters to her are the people within these stories and their own experience of co-creating those narratives, breaking away from traditionally extractive forms of storytelling. If you don't know what extractive forms of storytelling might be, think main media they're trying to interview someone, but they're trying to put someone in a certain situation for them to say something that they want versus really listening to the person and 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 trying to share what they're sharing, you know, and not what we want them to share in a way. That's that's kind of a, a gross a picture, but that's I, I just wanted to give you some insight into if you don't know what extractive forms of storytelling is. And photography can be very extractive where we're just trying to take photos from people, take, take, take versus create photos with people, create stories, tell their stories, you know. So Taylor received a master's in environmental management from the Yale Schools of Forestry, and she led the Yale Environmental Film Festival for two years before moving into this full-time career as a director, producer, and shooter. I'm not going to say more. Let's welcome Taylor to the podcast right now. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here. It's an honor to have you. I've seen a lot of your adventures across the years. It's been a while. I actually have been following that. And I've always been impressed by a few things. And it's mainly, I would say, this adventure feel in what you're doing. And I would say it's predominantly something where I see males usually. And I don't see as many women, or at least how it's being perceived. And so every time I see a woman, it just reminds me of my mom's adventures and mm. I'm like cheering and I'm like super excited to, to see that and, and also just like share those stories because I think it's important and it can inspire a lot of people. But beyond the inspiration also, I'm, I'm just curious about like how, how you get there, you know, and, and what kind of experience you end up having yourself as a filmmaker, as someone who is on the field and very what most people would say in comfortable situations, you know, and although maybe it's comfortable for you, you know, so what isn't comfortable is very different for different people. 
So I kind of wanted to open up with the first question, which is what got you to start howling with your dog? That's a really good question. What got me to start howling with my dog? Um, well, he, I mean, when he was a puppy, when we got him, he howled himself and that's just our way of communicating mm -hmm. and it's really fun in the mornings he actually comes up on the bed every morning once i wake up and he he like will sing and we'll like mm. sing and if i stop and go quiet he goes quiet and he waits for me and then i'll like start again and he starts again and yeah it's just really fun that's awesome mm -hmm. I, i'm asking because i i saw the ted talk obviously yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll link it for anyone who wants to watch it i think it's really insightful and there's actually so much we could unpack just from the TED talk. But I remember you were hauling on stage with, with you. How did that, how did that feel? Well, I didn't know if he was going to do it. You okay. know, we didn't practice. Yeah. I wasn't even sure if he would come on stage. So I, you know, I was really hoping it would work out and I had no idea if it was going to. Mm -hmm. So I did the TED talk and at the end I had the dog, my friend was holding the dog kind of in the side of the stage and yeah. let him go and he came out and, and it worked, you know, he howled and then the whole audience howled and everybody howled together. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, I think a very, it's a good way to bring joy to yeah. these experiences. Sometimes TED talks feel very like serious and intense, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of like ha joy that came through, you mm -hmm. know, in, in the TED talk and that was pretty good. And you used it to illustrate something you were talking about which was communication right between individuals like between peoples but can you can you elaborate a little bit of what was happening or what got you to connect this with the the communication we might have between humans even yeah i guess like the the reason that i brought my dog out at the end of my ted talk was just to um to reiterate that, you know, we can communicate across species boundaries. Yeah. I'm working on another project at the moment around a whale that's communicating with people in different ways. And I think there are so many amazing books coming out right now and research that talks about not just the communication processes of different species, but also interspecies communication, mm -hmm. how trees communicate with bugs, you know, through scents and pheromones and fungi in the soil and animals and all these things. So, you know, I think all, all life is always communicating with, yeah. with each other. And of course, with, with, you know, cultural boundaries, language boundaries, just within humanity, it's, you know, obviously we get pretty, we, we, find ourselves seeing each other as different and I think that like we are and I so we celebrate all of our unique differences but also I think we can always find commonality and friendship mm. even if it's like we per se we don't necessarily speak the same language. Mm. So I'm curious here because do you find the camera actually helps in the communication or do you think it actually kind of enters as a barrier almost you mm. know like? Well... I mean, it's certainly a thing, like yeah. when you travel or meet someone new and you're just building a friendship and learning about each other, sharing stories, you know, I'm sharing stories of my life, I'm learning about someone else's life. If the decision is made to introduce a camera and to make that story into a film, for example, yeah. like it does change, but I think that there's ways to bring camera technology into the communication space such that everyone kind of feels like it's a tool that's being shared mm -hmm. um, where we're kind of co-creating a scene or a, or a situation and there's consent across everyone mm. participating to be documented and so yeah. I don't think it has to be but certainly there's a lot of cases where you know 
um, even when I first started using a camera, I think I would go into a situation and start filming before I really learned how to just kind of look at it all differently and be more gentle. What would be the, the one skill or like the one helpful thing that you learned in, in that process that actually made you go from like, I'm super awkward and, and I feel like I'm intruding on people and you know, you know that feeling, uh, you probably have yeah. had it, I've had it, you know, in situations <laughs> uh, to you feel like it's more respectful and people understand it better. Was there a specific tip or, or moment that, that clicked for you? I mean, I still feel awkward all the time, <laughs> but I think like awkwardness is fine. You know, yeah. feeling awkward is okay. I think we are, we're, that's a natural thing to feel when we're entering into someone else's life too. Mm -hmm. Or if someone were to enter into mine that I didn't know to tell a yeah. story about me, which does happen too. Like they feel awkward. I feel awkward. Like it can be yeah. awkward. But I think the most important tip for me, I guess, is just, yeah, just like making sure that there's really a building of a friendship underneath all of it mm -hmm. fundamentally. And that's the biggest priority more than like getting the story or something, you know, otherwise, yeah. um, cause you would never hurt a friend. So as long as you're building a friendship with someone, you'll always be listening and looking to see if people feel uncomfortable or something's going on in the filming process. That's not, you know, not going well. Yeah. If you really like make sure that there's care and communication. Which sounds super different than investigative <laughs> interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different. Or you're I mean, trying I think to investigative push people in corner. Are, are important too, for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's 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 the 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 communication and the conversation we have with people and with camera. It's literally one of the topic that comes up the most, even with me and and people who 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 I teach and and people who watch my stuff. They're like, how, how do you communicate with people you don't know, you know, and, and how, how is that exchange? So that's why I thought it's, it's always an interesting take, mm -hmm. especially because, well, it sounds like you've operated in scenarios where you couldn't even speak the same language. And so it's like, how do you go beyond language barrier, you know? And yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how, how we can evolve beyond that. How, how was... Was there a specific experience or like shoot or moment where you felt like how you saw life and it's kind of broad, but that you felt there was a shift in, in you and in how you perceive the world? What a rich question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty big, but it's almost like, you know, a turning point kind of yeah. and where you're like, oh. I'm gonna have to think about that for a second. Hmm. Take all the time. I, I, I think I would answer it in that I think every project has that, you know? Yeah. Like, and it's interesting that it's always, there's a pattern building for me. So yeah. when I was in Myanmar, for example, in 2015, which was kind of at the beginning of this career for me, I went in with a specific kind of understanding of what I thought I was going to encounter and then making sure we took the time Uh, to, to have these knowledge sharing sessions at night where we would sit around a fire with a translator and just open up the conversation to like be asked um, anything about us and where we come from and mm. what's going on in our lives and in return, be able to ask the community what was going on in their lives and, and things that they wanted to share and discuss. Like that, that process created a shift for me. It was really the beginning of my understanding of how communities can be conservation refugees in a mm -hmm. way. So I think I uh, probably had a, a really small understanding that, you know, national parks and the establishment of protected areas is just inherently good. And we want to yeah. protect earth and land and 
um, animals and like, you know, that that's just good, yeah. period. But in those knowledge sharing, sharing sessions in Myanmar, I really listened to how that process was being done in a, in a really damaging way because they were pushing the communities out of land they had historically lived on. Yeah. If the communities left and tried to come back, they weren't allowed by the government. The communities weren't able to really participate in in the establishment of the park or to like offer concessions. It was kind of being managed from the outside. So, and I saw that same thing happen in Guyana, you know, 10 years later, mm-hmm. where we were moving through um, parts of the Amazon rainforest, kind of, well, not exactly the rainforest, but yeah, this Guyanan shield uh, where these big Tupui mountains are and, you know, the indigenous people of that place. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think going in, all I knew is that we were looking for frogs and I, and I knew I would, I would have a shift, like something would happen if I made sure to listen. And okay. so I, I, you know, we all did. And one of the things we learned was that the Akawayo and other indigenous groups of that region were also experiencing that, that they mm-hmm. were that the establishment of a national park, while could potentially serve to put in place important protections that make sure like bird species and amphibians are, mm-hmm. you know, protected from mining and other threats, but that it was being done in a, you know, controlled by the government versus okay. versus like run and supported and by consensus, the people. Yeah. yeah, and just like that they that the communities that live there were involved and they helped yeah. to manage it. And so there's an alternative in Guyana called COCAs, Community Organized Conservation Areas. Mm. And I, and those are really successful. And I've had similar experiences around this in the Arctic and Alaska, Nepal, just in general, always seeing how the more ownership and involvement a people of the area can have in, yeah. in the healing of a relationship with earth or whatever, you know, mm. natural resources or nature or environments are around, the, the better. So I think that's a shift that I've that's always been happening a little bit. Yeah, it's true. I I had the exact same vision as you until recently where I was like, parks are great, you know, like, yeah, we should conserve everything. And then I I was in Tanzania and we went to see a a tribe, the Hadzabe tribe. And and I was like, but there is nothing to hunt on the land you're in right now. Like you're hunting tarsies and stuff, but you're talking like they're talking that there was giraffes and all that. And then I learned that they were (laughs) pushed out of the park. Yeah, I'm like. So now you're fighting with the farmers to be there. And I'm like, oh, I guess parks are, yeah, you know, it's like until you see it or you, you like try to understand it, it's like one of those things. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, crazy. You're like, oh, yeah. whoa, wait. And yeah, I love what you're saying. It's, it's literally both parties. And, and I think if you can involve the local communities at, at the end of the day want to preserve what they have usually, you know, it's, it's rare that they're trying, oh, we want to destroy what yeah, we live, yeah. you know. So that's yeah. a, that's that's really insightful, and I want to jump on the Guyana um, project because I I've seen the behind the scenes I think with the I think when they did the A1 launch or something there was a video, and it looked very very extreme. It slightly made me dream, and at the same time I was like this looks like hell. At the same time, you know, it's like oh this is cool cool. And how how was the experience for you? And can you just give us a little bit of of like. What what did it entail? What did you just get a letter that says go look for frogs, <laughs> and then it disappeared? So that story started with Mark Sinnett and Bruce Means, who is the frog biologist that mm-hmm. had been working in this region for thirty years. Like wow. had this harebrained idea, you know, to take Bruce on his final potential, his potentially his last expedition to Guyana to continue to yeah. document the diversity of life there, and they were, you know. 
Bruce had been through the forest and he'd been at the top, but he'd never connected the two. And mm. to connect the two, the top of these tapuis and, and the forest below, he would kind of need to go up the wall. How so the high idea are those walls? was that we would find a climber to, to bring him up. And so yeah. Alex Honnold was the obvious choice of a good climber to bring him up the wall. And what we could not have known, although maybe, maybe, we, maybe we could have, but yeah, just that the trekking was so much harder than we yeah. had thought it was going to be. I don't think it was too, really too stressful or, or dangerous. I think yeah. it was just, it was long. And for Bruce, who is 80 years old and... He's 80? He's 80. He was with you? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he's six, seven, you know, he's this giant human. And so when he falls, it's a big, yeah. it's a long way down, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. so just the, just the danger of just the trekking alone, you know, we decided yeah. about halfway through that I would stay with Bruce in... Yeah a little camp that we created and he would look for frogs in that area while the climbing team went up the wall and looked for frogs separately. So Got it. yeah, it was, it wasn't too bad. We had hammocks and I got to learn how to make a fire out of wet wood, which was a really uh, a skill that I'll always take with me now. Oh yeah. I, I can imagine mm -hmm. that's yeah. Rainforest fire. Mm. How, how, how tall are those walls? Just to give an idea. The walls are, like a thousand, about a thousand feet tall. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not the small rock formation. Mm -hmm. No, it's pretty big. Yeah. And uh, so he was 80 years old. He was, how long did you guys stay in the jungle? Gosh, we were in the jungle for about a month, I think. A month. Yeah. Wow. Or a little bit longer. Wow. Yeah. So we walked 50 miles in at about like four or five miles a day because it's okay. really convoluted and there's tons of yeah. you know, roots and rivers and um, mud. Yeah. But yeah. And fun. you guys survived? We survived. survived. Yeah. <laughs> once more, once more, the yeah. two survived. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, lo it looked a little crazy. And every single story I hear from the Amazonian forest or people who try to cross it and who do cross it, it's, they always like usually underestimate how hard it can be to walk through stuff. Yeah. And was there, how was it carrying gear? Because that's something no one sees, you know, it's even like in expedition stuff. Like everyone's like sees the climber go up or the athlete, but there is a team filming with gear. So uh, how, how is it from your point of view? Yeah, we had a really solid team that time, actually. Just as like a female director, I was a little worried in some ways with an all-male team. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I was like, am I really going to be seen as the director or all these cinematographers in our kind of support group yeah. gonna look to me for leadership or am I going to be like fighting a small battle in the back of my mind all the time, not, not feeling, you know, respected or something. I mean, these yeah. just from past experiences, not having it not always go well. And I just really put the intention out for myself that I was yeah. like, this is going to be great. Our team's going to work really well together and I'm going to feel awesome in this position. And I'm going to be able to like really, really direct this, which I was so excited to do. And, and I think that that intention really shifted things for me. Cause I think if you mm. go into something, just assuming like, oh, this is going to go wrong and yeah, and it's going to be super hard and everyone's going to kind of fall apart and not treat each other well. Like you, you take yeah. that energy in. So I really like really focused and meditated on the intention of what I wanted it to be. And it was great. I think it was one of my favorite trips that we've done. We had Rudy and Matt and Snacks and Renan and just our whole camera team really supported each other. You know, and it is hard. You are you are trying to keep up with the athletes while also filming them and also holding gear. Yeah. But, you know, everyone everyone's there with the same goal so yeah. everyone's kind of there to help each other yeah. make it work okay that's yeah that's interesting how how do you how, how do you see that space of being director and and like like what you said trying to have people 
listen to you but at the same time it's all male or there's a mix like through your experience what have you maybe taken from it or, or learned through those experiences I'm kind of curious because even just as a male between other males you know or between the mixed group it's it's always like kind of not weird but it, you know there's a little bit of that like up down position somehow mm -hmm. sometimes and whether we want it or not it's I don't know that's how I've been raised or like society kind of teaches us things yeah I mean it's really you're asking I think an important question about leadership and does leadership need a bit of a top-down hierarchy in mm -hmm. order to function or you know I don't I think everyone has a different a little bit different style yeah and we certainly have been taught that leadership means you know bossing everyone around and yeah um, it's like in every cartoon you watch as a kid and, you know yeah. it's like you know it's it's my direction and you got to do what I say because this is my role. But I think what we're learning in general and just as this evolving society and what works for me is, is leadership just through, you know, good communication and collaboration too. I mean, obviously it, it's not like an open kitchen where, mm -hmm. you know, the AC and the cinematographer and the director and the, yeah. the guy backing up photos, like all have, can have input on like what we should film that day per se. Yeah. Like, But it doesn't, I don't know, I don't, I don't really lead through getting too stuck on thinking like my, my idea is the right idea. It's like you mm -hmm. have, you have the inner knowing about the direction of say a film needs to go or yeah. it's been established with the client or the, the channel that like we're, you know, we're, we're documenting the story. These are who our characters are going to be. This is the arc that we're looking for. Yeah. It's pretty well understood. And if things go a little bit left or a little bit right, like how do you bring that back or how do you shift mm -hmm. directions? Really making that process of doing that open and collaborative. So talking with the with your entire team and saying, you know, okay, here's what I think our goal for the day is, or here is how I'm understanding this particular problem in our story that we're looking at. What do you guys think? You know, mm -hmm. how should we, and getting everyone's input and making people feel like they have ownership and agency within it, so. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's like involving every single piece in the process. Yeah. And how long do you do you prepare those shoots and expeditions for usually? It depends. I think we prepared for that one for like a year. Yeah. Yeah, months of story development, working with really amazing producers at National Geographic, Banked and Drew and Jean-Marie and Brian and John Block. There's just like a whole bunch of people on their end and mm -hmm. developed that story together and planned it. And then there's the actual expedition planning, you know, food and gear. And we had 80 porters. 80? 80. 80. So it was like there a, was 80 of you in the jungle? Mm -hmm. This is like a village. It was a whole movie. <laughs> Woodstock every day. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. And all these little camps, you know, because people just kind yeah. of spread out and hang hammocks up and everyone just had little family groups and you could just see these little fires all around. And you could, it was really cool to like walk between the camps and it just very co very cozy sweet situation yeah yeah people singing and oh that's so cool yeah the 80 wow i didn't expect that like yeah, really because <laughs> it, even when you look at the result after you're like oh it looks like it's a small expedition yeah. and you're like we're like six people got lost in the jungle yeah to look for frogs okay i'm sure yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's, <laughs> you know it's um, yeah and so i imagine you involve the local communities as as porters mm -hmm. yeah and and do you do you Are you able or do you feel like you want to tell their story at the same time when you're doing that? Or do you feel, I don't know how you say split, sometimes in the projects when you're like, oh, this is, we're doing that story, obviously, but I also want to shoot this or 
Or is it something yeah. you're like, maybe I'll come back and develop something around it? Totally. I mean, that story in particular, the way that it you know came to be, the the type yeah. of show that it was for, it's an explore exploration yeah. adventure show. You know, it's always kind of sad that Alex and Alex Honnold and Bruce are going to be the main characters. We're kind of following this mm -hmm. journey, and of course, you then then you're there with all these people and all these local people and all their stories. You know, this is so fascinating, and this is something we don't see all the time. Yeah. And and what they were going through too, just trying to figure out how how they, as a, a number of different indigenous groups, were going to be forming kind of alliances with each other yeah. to have a bigger voice in the government, which is which is new. And I really think Guyana is actually doing a pretty good job at. It's like allowing mm -hmm. these indigenous communities to form organizations and have a collective voice around how, you know, yeah, again, how conservation was going to be established, how different types of resource extraction could go down in, you know, somewhat sustainable and safe ways. It's just amazing to yeah. learn and see. And, Yeah, I would have loved to tell that story. Maybe go, maybe go back, but that wasn't the purpose of this particular show. So yeah, yeah I had to keep the cameras focused and yeah, that's, on the yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Wow, 80 people. That's amazing. Yeah. I love hearing that. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna shift gear and go back to something else. But I, I just love the the jungle stuff. It's just it's so interesting. It's like, did you, did you get attacked by anacondas? I'm joking. <laughs> but you mentioned you you meditated on on your intention going into the the role. And even the project, do you have a specific meditation practice that you that you carry with you, and that maybe either it's for creative or just like in general? No, not not really. I meditate. I mean, I do a lot of my calming of my nervous system and of my mind, and if I'm having like emotional storms mm -hmm. in in nature, often while moving, okay. I find that that's you know sometimes the best way for me to kind of get out of my head you know walking in trees really paying attention to the way that the leaves move and the light is moving and soften my gaze and you know feel and sense mm. myself as a part of the forest you know sitting is hard for me yeah <laughs> but i i will sit sometimes but yeah and i i used to teach yoga and so movement like slow intentional movement yeah. breathing and being outside i think is where i can best take yeah things i need to like bring into my heart or put mm -hmm. at the forefront of my intention. That's where I, I like to try to give that like space and energy. What do you mean by, uh, I'm bouncing on what you said. What, you mentioned softening your gaze and like, wh what does it feel like? Or what, do, what is, mm. what do you, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, so I think we, um, I'm wearing my glasses right now. Yeah. I have these glasses so I can like see clearly certain things. But ultimately, I think we're a culture very accustomed to like, oh, I need to have like this visual acuity and clarity so I can like read the signs and mm -hmm. read the billboards and read my phone and read the computer and read the chalkboard, you know. Yeah. But I've, I've been reading a couple books. One is called Sight and Sensibility. One is called Take Off Your Glasses and See. And they're both really fascinating with the fact that when you are hyper-focused on like, you know, you're wearing your glasses and you're really trying to like see and we're so, you know, we, we have blinders on in these ways, literally. Yeah. And I, th I think we're losing a, a bit of a sense of our connectivity to space mm -hmm. and land through that. And we're often in our heads and thinking and we're not even really seeing what we're yeah. looking at. And the words around this stuff can get a little loosey-goosey and I don't really have the best way of describing it, but I just go into the forest and I just relax my eyes and I let like the sides of my eyes relax and I let my vision move around in a relaxed way. And if I do that for a little while, I 
see and think differently. I really do. My brain changes. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a good it. practice. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of a little bit of that research of like just having a broader field of you trying to broaden it or mm -hmm. even just looking up more, mm -hmm. which was oh, yeah. like surprising. So they could all kind of come in. And, and then I tried, I just looked up and I was like, even walking out, I'm yeah. like, it's weird. You feel different if you look mm -hmm. up and there's a sky or than if you're just looking down. It's it's slightly strange. Yeah. Well, it was surprising because I never noticed, you know, until someone mentions it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and creatively, how do you find your expression in terms of, or where do you find your, how do you call that, your, I won't say inspiration because it's a little bit too broad, but where, if you're in a creative difficult point, what do you, what do, you do or where do you go to connect back with your creativity? I usually, like dance or move but mm. it's not 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 always to music like my own personal practice is just it's kind of half yoga half dance it's mm -hmm. i trained in lila yoga which is means divine play mm -hmm. and it's a yoga practice that's kind of like kayaking where you when you're kayaking you're kind of you know you have your tools and you know your moves but the the river is dictating what happens yeah. and so you're kind of playing with the water and yoga for me like i you know the the really strict practices are beautiful and amazing and I think work for some people. Um, for me, I like to take those movements and forms and just kind of free flow and mm. breathe until I come to a place where I'm not judging myself. I'm not belittling myself. I mean, all the things that block our creativity, you know, that mm. you can't do it and oh, that's horrible. And, and just kind of like letting that all go, having a little space and then, yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the, a lot of the, the practices is very strict and, and like square, which I understand, but it's very yang also. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. slightly masculine, you mm -hmm. know, like I need to hit hard the wall yeah. <laughs> to make it yeah. or, or like to yeah. even break my own mind. But yeah, uh, yeah it's actually like free flow is, is yeah, that's, that's awesome. I hope anyone listening will take, mm. take that and like... Try, try that practice. Tell her we, I want to be mindful with your time. We Thank have a so hard much. stop. Um, okay, where do you want to send people to, to explore either your work or something you're passionate about right now? Well, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I was like talking to, we're here at a Sony conference right now and having a lot of discussions. And honestly, lately, a lot of the projects I'm working on I'm, are not really, until they're released into the world, like I haven't been using Instagram quite as much to mm -hmm. share updates. So, but I do have Instagram. It tends to be a lot of photos of my dog and my family. It's Taylor Free Solo, which is my middle name. But in terms of updates and projects, hopefully I'll have a couple films coming out next year and that'll be like a new, mm -hmm. a new way to share. Awesome. I'll link everything in the description below. Okay. Or you guys can find the show note on ptl.fm forward slash podcast. And Taylor, thank you so much for thank being you, here. Pierre. Thank really you for your time. Conversation. I really like it. Yeah. Second, second time's a charm. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email? It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top five. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.